up on today's show, the importing handguns ban will kick in this month. We'll hear both sides of the argument, both for and against. Does Canada need a bullet train? Why don't we have a bullet train? We'll get into that conversation. And we'll also talk about the fact that we're seeing all kinds of things happening around economic policy and interest rates and inflation. On Friday, um, Public Safety Minister Marco Mendocino announced that the federal government is going to fast-track the ban on the importation of handguns into Canada. They're not going to wait for it to go through legislative circles and be debated and passed as a law. I mean, that still is going to happen, but they're going to use a regulatory measure to do it immediately. Um, It will last until the permanent freeze is based in Parliament and comes into force. You remember it was back in the spring. Um, I think it was May, where they announced um, new gun control legislation. And one of the items in there was uh, a freeze on the importation, the purchase, the sale, and the transfer of all handguns in Canada. But it didn't pass before we got into the summer break at Parliament. It is going to be debated once again in the fall. um, And then, you know, go through the process and who knows how long it might take. It could theoretically last into next year before it actually does become law. Um, So rather than wait, the government has decided they will do this uh, with the regulatory measure. The minister, uh, Melanie Jolie, foreign affairs minister, says she has the authority to ban any import or export permit in Canada. So going to go ahead and do it. And of course, some people like the idea and others don't. That's how it is around gun control. Um, Right now, we're going to have a chat with uh, Dr. Wendy Sukir, who is the president of the Coalition for Gun Control. Uh, Dr. Sukir, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. So it would seem that the government came to a realization here that that the gun control efforts that they want to bring in, specifically around handguns, um, they don't want to wait. They'd rather do it now rather than wait for it to to go through the House and everything. Um, This is a move that you support? Yeah, for sure. I mean, what we've seen is uh, a huge proliferation in legally owned handguns. And remember, um, government has the power to prohibit any firearms not reasonably used in hunting. Handguns aren't used for hunting. They're not used for predator control. And uh, most of the handguns in Canada are imported. We've gone from 360,000 in about uh, 2005 to over a million. And the handgun imports have doubled in the last six months. So, you know, I, I have a sense of urgency on this. And I think... You know, we just have to look south of the border to see where things go if uh, if you don't take action. A million is too many, in my view, but this will at least turn off the tap. And I think, you know, it was kind of interesting to hear um, Mendocino and uh, Jolie talking about it last week, saying when they initially announced this back in May, um, people bought up handguns like crazy, realizing that they were running out of time to do so. So this is an effort to try and keep uh, guns dealers from from restocking the shelves and and seeing more handguns go out. So in a in effect, between you know last May and now, it's been counterproductive as more and more people have bought more and more handguns. Well, exactly, and it's behavior we've seen previously when it comes to you know every time a gun is used in a mass shooting you see a spike in sales because uh, gun owners are concerned it will be prohibited. So, um, you know, the majority of Canadians, even in your province, uh, support a ban on handguns. Mm -hmm. There may be debates about 
the level of controls on rifles and shotguns because they serve legitimate purposes. But even a lot of gun owners support a ban on handguns and, and military assault weapons. And they're only they're under three hundred thousand legal owners of restricted weapons in Canada. So those guns are concentrated in the hands of a relatively small number of people. And, you know, I think the, the strategy of banning the import and the transfer at least stems the proliferation. And, and given the fact that we have seen legal gun owners involved in a number of mass shootings, and we've also seen legal handguns, uh, stolen and used in mass shootings like the Danforth, um, I think most Canadians basically say enough is enough and want to stem the tide. But doctor, and I guess the argument here, and you know this, of course, I mean, the fact that you can mention an incident where a handgun was stolen and used in a crime like that, I mean, far, far, far more often handguns that are involved in criminal activity in our country are illegal and they're illegally smuggled. They don't go through any of these processes. This won't do anything to change that. So, I mean, that's the argument. How does this actually help? I mean, in the odd instance, like you say, it does. But overall, is this the best approach? Even in Toronto, 20 to 25 percent of the handguns recovered in crime originated with Canadian uh, sources. And what you will find is in Alberta, it's a higher percent. And certainly in British Columbia, where they did a study of um, guns recovered in crime, the majority were at one time legally owned. So I think, you know, you have to look city by city. And what you will see is in your province, uh, for example, gun uh, gun crime is higher in rural communities because they're more legally owned guns. So uh, I can cite specific incidents, but the fact is that we don't have good data in Canada. We the the last testimony I saw from the commissioner of the RCMP was 55% of firearms that they have tracked. Um, which is not all of them, and recovered in crime were at one time legally sourced. Now, a lot of those... Is that all guns or or handguns in particular? It's all guns. It's all guns. But a substantial proportion are are handguns. And, you know, if if 25%, even if it is as little as 25%, and I don't believe it is overall in Canada, but if you're dealing with 25% of the problem, that's something. Absolutely it is. Uh, and like you say, I mean, the, the the data would be helpful. And there's no question. I mean, you take a look at what's going on in Calgary right now. They're running at double the five-year average in, in the first six months of this year. Um, when you see what's happening with this, uh, I guess, what do we want to call it, a temporary regulatory action or whatever the case may be, um, would you like to see that brought in on more than just the handguns? Would you like to see them take the similar actions? I mean, it's different because you're not talking about import and export, but are you worried about the time span in between the announcement last May and when this may actually become law? I mean, the, the big issue for us is banning assault weapons and, and handguns. And with assault weapons, they're taking additional steps to buy them back and so on. But I think that, uh, I think that the, you know, one of the things that perhaps they should be looking at is the uh, proliferation as well of restricted weapons permit applications. I mean, look how long it takes to get a passport. I'm not sure we should be fast-tracking restricted weapons permit applications for new gun owners. So that would be something else that uh, certainly they could look at. But I think this is a very important measure and will as I said, won't solve the problem, but it's definitely like turning off the tap.
Yeah, and I guess the argument then is you reduce the number of handguns overall in the country, that reduces the risks of these handguns falling into the wrong hands, ultimately. Yeah, you're not actually going to reduce the number of handguns. You're going to hold them close. Yeah, sure. Yeah, A million is plenty. And uh, a million handguns, 300,000 restricted weapons owners, they're supposed to be restricted. Um, and, you know, what we've seen in recent years is the uh, it's it's far too easy to legally get access to these firearms. And um, we've seen enough cases where uh, that has uh, dire consequences. And as I said, most Canadians support a ban on handguns. So this is not a small, um, you know, radical group of people pushing for a ban on on uh, all guns this is a very specific focus on handguns and of course the other measures on military assault weapons yeah exactly i mean it's 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 a very different conversation around the handguns you're absolutely right uh, doctor thank you so much for your time i appreciate you joining us today thanks for including me that's dr wendy sukir who is with the coalition for gun control president of the coalition for gun control um, and the latest stats, uh, 67% of Canadians polled do want a ban on handguns. So about, let's, call, let's call it two-thirds. Um, and uh, the government, uh, in, in tabling this legislation, said the number of handguns registered in Canada has gone up 71% between 2010 and 2020, reaching approximately 1.1 million people, or uh, 1.1 million registered handguns. Um, that's where we stand. Um, now, again, the question is, and I'm sure our next guest will raise this very same question, the legal handguns, uh, and, and it's, I wish we could come up with this stat, but as she said, the data is not necessarily there in terms of how often, when we're talking about handgun crime, is it one of these legal handguns that we're talking about? Or, I mean, that's the whole thing, right? If you're talking about 1.1 million legally registered handguns in Canada. How many are illegally brought into this country and are in the hands of people illegally and used in crime? I would ra- I would wager that uh, the guns that are used in crime in Canada, the handguns, uh, far, far and away are illegal versus legal handguns. Now, I get the argument of reducing the number or at least holding the number where it is and therefore reducing the chance of them falling into the wrong hands, but I can see the argument as this is misguided and is not necessarily going to help when it comes to the handguns because it's the smuggling. It's the illegal handguns that are the biggest problem. Um, We're going to take a quick break, though. Now we'll get the other side of the conversation when we come back right after this. Is this an effort of we're going to be, we don't want to be seen as we're not doing something, so we are going to do something. But in reality, what's it going to do? Because... The primary focus, I think, is the illegal handguns, right? That's that's where that's where the problem lies. Although, how do you deal with that? Laws, I mean, what do you do? I don't know. See if our next guest knows. Rod Giltaka, president of the Canadian Coalition for Firearms Rights. Rod, thank you for joining us. Appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. So first of all, let's respond. Uh, just your reaction to hearing that the federal government has decided to go ahead with this regulatory move causing, uh, well, pretty much an immediate freeze on the importation of handguns rather than wait for it to go through the uh, the typical, you know, passage of legislation. Well, I might exchange the word typical to appropriate. Um, the, uh, the, the Liberals love to misuse the order in council uh, privilege that they have. Uh, we're suing them in federal court over 
their previous use in the in the gun ban. Uh, but basically, I think what you're seeing is uh, a liberal government that's panicking. Um, they're failing on a lot of different fronts, including their so-called gun buyback program. They couldn't find a public sector partner to help them. They can't find a private sector partner to help them do it. So they want to make it look like it's not failing, that they're doing something. So I guess this is, uh, this is uh, where we're the whipping post for the Liberals, and uh, this is what we get, I guess. So, I mean, we know that most Canadians do support, I don't know if it's necessarily a ban on handguns, but stiffer gun control around handguns. It's a different category, isn't it, Rod? I mean, and, and our, our earlier guest, Wendy uh, Sukier, the president for the Canadian Coalition for Firearms Rights, was saying, you know what, they don't have a legitimate purpose in terms of hunting or predator, uh, predator control, those sorts of things. It is a different category in some ways, isn't it? We have an absolute legitimate purpose for ownership of handguns, and this has been going on for 100 years in Canada. This is nothing new. I think a lot of people, you know, they think that there's something new has happened, something's changed. But handgun owners in Canada, um, they have to um, be licensed. Yep. These firearms are registered. They're tightly controlled. Hand, handgun well, firearm owners in general are very responsible people, and we've owned them for sporting purposes and collecting forever. As I said, this is nothing new, and I think this is this is uh, one of the stumbling blocks we have in this conversation. People own these guns. They're not a threat to public safety. It's just a political convenience for some people. Okay, Rod, when we're talking about the handguns and, and the move being made by the Liberal government here, and I, I think by and large I agree with you. This is rather... Um rather than actually solving the problem, this is made to, we're doing something. I don't know how effective it's going to be in actually addressing it because we have the illegal handgun problem. So how do you solve that, Rod? I'm sure as a responsible and illegal gun owner, you're just as upset about the illegal guns and the gun crime. I mean, Calgary has seen a, you know, a doubling of the amount of gun crime in the first six months of this year over the five-year average. So, so what is the answer? What do we need to do here? Well, and of course we're upset about that. I mean, my, my kids are moving around in this society, my friends, my family, and myself. We all want a safer Canada. And in fact, gun owners just as much, if not more, than anybody else, because not only do we want a safer Canada, we want people to stop pointing the finger at right. us compl- without any foundation whatsoever by saying, you're the problem. It's, it's, it's absurd. Um, but the, the problem with gun violence is it's violence. Right. I mean, people, they, they parse off gun violence, just violence in general. So what what are the social predeterminants for violence? Of course, poverty, lack of employment, lack of opportunity, lack of hope, uh, bad culture. You know, an interesting dynamic is the gang problem in Toronto is very much poverty driven. But the gang problem in Vancouver, a lot of these most of these gang members come from middle class or affluent families. So it's a lifestyle thing. So we need to look at why people are behaving this way and pour our resources into that. That way, I don't get targeted for absolutely no reason, and our problem actually gets solved. How do we handle the illegal handguns coming into the country? That, I mean, that's the, that's the question. I mean, it's great to say, yeah, let's solve poverty and let's solve gang violence. No country on earth has been able to do that, though, Rod. So in the meantime, um, do we not need to try and limit the number of illegal guns in the hands of these people right now? Of course we do. We need to do everything we can to limit the illegal, uh, illegally held handguns. So when it comes to the border, it's you're, you're also describing problems like you described the problem of poverty and violence as I wouldn't say unsolvable. Right. But a, a, a monumental yeah, challenge. Absolutely. So the same thing with the border. I mean, we just had someone caught for, for flying a drone across the border with 11 or 13 handguns on it. So, uh, again, I mean, 
you know, investments at the border, sure, that's great. But we have to solve our violence problem or the violence will never end. There's too many guns. There's 400 million guns in the United States, more than enough to, to, to keep on going for 100 years, even if all guns were banned today. So why don't we just focus on the social determinants of violence, get rid of that, and, uh, and, and enforce the laws that we have on the books. Um, Rod, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate your time, as always. Thanks for the opportunity. You bet. That's uh, Rod Giltaka, who is the president of the Canadian Coalition for Firearms Rights. And I think, you know what, when it comes to gun control, um, I- I've always been f- very comfortable with the gun control that we've had in this country. I think a lot of it is reactionary to what happens in the United States. Indeed, um, this announcement followed one of the mass shootings in the U.S. I can't remember which one. Um, and I think that's disingenuous, too. I, I think when you take a look at gun violence in Canada, is it perfect? No, absolutely not. I'm not, I'm not saying that we don't have an issue here. And, um, but when it comes to gun control, um, I, I, don't, I don't know if that's the answer. I really and truly don't. I think I'm fully in support of gun control. I think the United States is is a dumpster fire. I mean, it is so painfully obvious to anybody who looks at things, you know, honestly to recognize that they need some form of gun control in the United States. Um, but I think we have it, have had it. And I don't know if, if uh, what we're trying to do with, especially around this handgun uh, ban, is really going to change the equation all that much. There's a lot of people that think we need bullet trains in Canada. There's two areas that I hear hear talked about bullet trains all the time. One of them, of course, is that big corridor through uh, Ontario and up to Montreal, right? That's a big one. Lots of people, lots of population. Why don't we have a bullet train? We need a bullet train. The other one, of course, as you know, um, high-speed train, I think they're doing some testing once again, aren't they, between Edmonton and Calgary? They've always, always talked about a high-speed rail link there. Always. And then maybe extending it out to Banff. And I think that's the discussion that's underway right now. So those are the two areas I hear. Well, we have a guest going to join us here, Aaron Woodrick, director of the McDonald laurier Institute um, Domestic Policy Program, who says, you know what? Canada doesn't need bullet trains. We really don't. So let's find out why you think so. Aaron, thanks for joining us. Appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me, Shay. Hey, first of all, have you seen the movie? Did you go see the movie? I have. You know, I saw the preview and I went to see Top Gun, but uh, your, your your comments are not encouraging me of thinking it's <laughs> a worthwhile expenditure. Don't take my word for it, Aaron, because like I say, a lot of people really did like it. I think maybe it was just me. But regardless, let's talk about real-life bullet trains here. Now, um, it's, it's back um, in the spotlight again. <laughs> because of an unfortunate, although extremely humorous gaffe made by our environment minister last couple of weeks, right? Yeah, I mean, that was uh, really something that uh, we had the federal environment minister sort of promising to tour Canada by train. I mean, this has popped up from time to time. Uh, and I should say up front, as I think I mentioned, at least, I'm a fan of trains. I mean, I personally love trains. Yeah. I think they're a great way to travel. It's not a sort of personal animus against trains that I make these arguments. But, you know, Elizabeth May made this argument when she was Green Party leader. She was going to, you know, campaign on the train. The reality is it's really impractical in a really large country with a really low population density. And, you know, I, I see people who look enviously around whether it's Europe, whether it's Japan, and sort of think, why can't we have those things? And uh, they're frustrated, and they think it's a simple matter of, well, let's just spend the money and build it. And, you know, I'm really just trying to point out they're perfectly 
logical, defensible reasons why we've never done it, and frankly, why it's probably never going to happen. Yeah, because you're right. I mean, it's been kicked around for as long as I can remember, and it just never seemed to get anywhere. So what are these reasons? Is it is it just that we're too spread out, we don't have the population to support it? That's certainly part of it. I mean, part of it comes down to um, the opportunity cost. So, I mean, these are very expensive projects, right? We're talking tens of billions of dollars. Um, so you spend the money on that. You're not spending it on other things. And if you ask around, I think there are plenty of Canadians who would say, well, there are other higher priorities I have other than to train, especially if you don't live in one of those corridors, right? There's half the country does not live anywhere near where these trains would go. And then even for the people who live on those corridors, if you live in a small along the corridor yeah. um, it may not stop there um if you do get off there how do you get around town once you're there without a vehicle right so there's all okay. kinds of other sort of obvious uh logistical problem. Yeah, Aaron, I think you make a great point. And that's part of the discussion when we talk about Edmonton, Calgary. That's one of the things that always comes up is, okay, you've got this great link that'll get you from Edmonton to Calgary. Then what do you do? You know, you, you still need a way of getting around. And, and our country, whether we like it or not, has been built for the automobile in many ways. Yeah, that's the other reality is we have a culture here, and, and it makes sense, right? When you think of this continent, it's mostly shared with the Americans in that uh, we have a lot of space. We tend to live in larger houses. We live in communities that are heavily suburbanized. Like Unless you're going to change that first, it's very hard to encourage people to just sort of switch. Unless, for example, I can see how people, if you live in downtown Toronto and you want to get to downtown Montreal or downtown Calgary, downtown Edmonton, maybe there will be people who will, who will get on that train, metaphorical train, so to speak. But for people who have to get to the suburbs or people who have to go stop at small towns it's just a giant headache once you get there uh so i think that's something that uh, that people need to bear in mind the other thing is lately it's become less about um you know it used to be about speed and efficiency it's about environmental benefit yeah. now, right trains are cleaner than cars so people sort of say well th- imagine if we get all these cars off the road and everyone's on the train and sets it sounds great but the problem is uh any of the studies and i've looked at a few including the one to calgary and edmonton the percentage of people that would actually get out of their cars because the benefit is in the switching, right? Yes. To get the environmental benefit, you have to get them out of the car into the train. It's very low. And in fact, we've seen with the, with one of the more uh, flashy proposals about 10 years ago between Calgary and Edmonton, they estimated that they could only reduce the number of cars by 5% with the train. So, I mean, you're not you're just not getting the bang for your buck in terms of the reduction in emissions uh, that it, that you would hope to get, uh, because it, t- it turns out it takes a lot to induce people to get out of their cars. I'm wondering, you know, as you say, a lot of the climate discussion is is behind this and uh, it makes sense that way. And we do some things uh, in the name of um, addressing climate change that don't necessarily make perfect sense, but the benefit seems to be there. I'm wondering when we move away from vehicles like we have now, we get to electric vehicles, which at this point, although who knows where, I mean, the, the, the range will get better. Right now, it might make more sense in some ways to take a bullet train rather than a vehicle that you have to charge. I mean, could there be considerations that one day that equation will tip, Aaron? Yeah, it's possible, but there's also things leaning the other way, right? And I say this as someone, I live in Ottawa, we have a new light rail system, which has become infamous, infamous for its follies. Um, you know, there's declining ridership, of course, because of the pandemic. But the argument I make in the piece, uh, Shay, is that, you know, one of the, the two main drawbacks with driving are the pollution, right, yep. from the gas and traffic. Traffic jams are bad, they waste time. Um, if you look at how vehicles are, are even more and more uh, cleaner vehicles, so no emissions, um, and also smart vehicles, so eventually, someday, maybe 20, 30 years from now, we won't be driving them. We'll be driving around. That means they can speak to each other. That means there's no traffic. So the two main uh, the two main downsides to driving combustion self cars that you have to drive will be mitigated. So that's going to further take away the benefit. Right now you get on a train, you don't have to pay for gas, you don't have to drive it. 
what if that happens when you can step into your own personal autonomous electric vehicle? I think that's going to make it a harder sell for people to get on trains. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it'll still be talked about, and I know there's work being done, but <laughs> you right. never dies. <laughs> you're absolutely right. Aaron, thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Thanks a lot for having me. You bet. That's Aaron Woodrick, uh, National Post column. Uh, sorry, he's with the director, he's the director of the McDonald Laurier Institute's Domestic Policy Program, wrote a column that appeared in the National Post. making some headway we're making some progress not to say though that we still have massive problems with uh inflation maybe it's going to get better i don't know i it depends on who you talk to in terms of whether we've peaked we're on the downside the upside what's going to happen all we know is uh inflation is at record highs and uh so are interest rates right well not record highs for interest rates but they're moving up in a way that we haven't seen in some time so um what's it going and, and then what about jobs because you saw the jobs report that came out last week and it was excellent I kind of, maybe, I don't know, because unemployment at all-time lows, but there's a lot of jobs available, and we're actually losing jobs, and unemployment is staying the same or going down. It's hard to make sense of. So we've got someone who can hopefully do just that for us. Jim Stanford, an economist and director of the Center for Future Work. Jim, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us. Thank you, sir, for having me. Yeah, no, it it all is a little confusing to a layperson like myself. Is the current Mm -hmm. unemployment situation... In Canada, is is it a good news story or a a bad news story? We've got low unemployment, but we've also got, you know, issues in terms of we're losing jobs every month. You know, Shay, uh, there's a famous joke where Harry Truman, the U.S. president, said, I'm sick and tired of economists saying on the one hand this and on the other hand that. Would somebody please bring me a one-armed economist? (laughs) And uh, the situation you described fits that perfectly. On the one hand... It's in a good state. The unemployment rate is low, and as you point out, there's a lot of job vacancies, and people feel more confident that they can find a job or even switch jobs if they're not happy with their current position, and that's a good thing. On the other hand, uh, we have seen some darkening clouds gathering on the horizon, and uh, Friday's uh, report from Statistics Canada was actually, I thought, quite negative. Second month in a row, we've lost a significant number of jobs uh, in the overall economy. And we're also starting to see uh, Canadians withdrawing from the labor market, which is a very negative sign. So this, uh, in my mind, dates back to March of this year. That's when the Bank of Canada put in the first of four interest rate increases. And their goal... Their goal is to slow the economy down, and guess what? It's working. Well, well, that's the thing. I mean, I don't know a whole lot about economics, but I do know that that's you know the textbook economic response to inflation, increase interest rates. Yeah. Um, so, are we getting exactly what we wanted to see, or is, has something gone awry? The problem in this case, uh, Shay, is the inflation itself doesn't really match the textbook story. You know, in that textbook story, uh, you've got a situation where unemployment is too low, wages are taking off, and businesses have to pass on those costs to consumers. But that isn't how this inflation happened. We had supply chain disruptions resulting from COVID. We had a global energy price shock, which is uh, retreating a bit, as you just uh, noted, but it still pushed energy prices very high. Mm -hmm. You've had a big shift in consumer spending patterns because we couldn't travel and we couldn't eat out so we bought building supplies to renovate our house and home electronics to get through the pandemic with 
All of those things created a set of inflationary pressures that's very different from the textbook response. So why do we want to then cool off the whole economy, which is what's happening, in order to address those problems which were quite unique and I think quite limited to the post-COVID environment? Yeah, exactly. It was such an extraordinary circumstance that maybe the the, the boilerplate textbook example is Mm. not going to be your best solution. That's what I would argue. I would argue that uh, for sure inflation was clearly a side effect of the pandemic and the responses to the pandemic. And uh, the economy is actually in much better shape uh, after the pandemic than most uh, economists, myself included, would ever have predicted. And that's partly because of the very strong uh, income supports and other measures that were put in place. So that should be a good news story. But if we focus too much on inflation, that really is, um, you know, a limited and uh, um, unusual set of circumstances that's caused this inflation, uh, then we kind of lose the forest for the trees. And this is where I think people are, particularly at the Bank of Canada, uh, are just um, obsessing over that one challenge, yeah. inflation, and ignoring the big picture. What What are some of the things that we aren't seeing? Like you say, because it, 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 it's, I mean, I don't want to say it's derivative, but like I said, mm-hmm. this is, seems to be the automatic response. It always mm-hmm. is to rising inflation. What kind of right. subtleties, what other... You know, uh, indicators are you looking at is maybe we can do things a little differently this time around? Yeah, well, one of them that I've been following closely is wages, uh, of course. And if, in fact, the problem was resulting from a a labor market that was too tight, then you should see wages uh, accelerating and leading the inflationary process. And that clearly has not happened. There's been a bit of an uptick in wages, but wages are way, way behind inflation, which means almost all workers are actually have lower real wages. That means less purchasing power today than they did uh, a year ago or even before the pandemic now. So uh, this is a real challenge, and it's more evidence that the problem didn't start in the labor market. So why are we going to hammer the labor market to solve this problem? I think there could be other ways, other ways we get at it uh, in terms of looking at uh, some of the, uh, some of the price pressures, some of the supply chain problems, uh, smoothing out some of the infrastructure problems we've seen at ports and railways and that kind of thing. Uh, And some of it, frankly, is just going to involve waiting. Uh, We have already seen energy prices coming down. We're seeing uh, agricultural commodities coming down. We're seeing shipping costs coming down. So some of this problem is going to solve itself, and we don't need to put the whole economy into a recession in order to wrestle inflation to the ground. That's what I wanted to ask, because you're talking about supply chains and things like that, and they are starting Mm -hmm. to get better. But, I mean, I guess... Is it a matter of patience? And how long can you be patient when you see costs doing what they're doing? There's a demand to act, right? Yeah, there's a demand to act. The question is, uh, you know, by throwing people out of work, are are you actually imposing a a cure that's worse than the disease? And in many cases, I think I think you are. So, um, uh, you know, the the big fear that has been stated is that we'll get a repeat of what was considered the 1970s storyline of so-called wage price spiral, where rising wages were passed on to consumers and then more wages and then more prices and so on and so forth. And that storyline is definitely not what's happening right now. In fact, we've seen prices move way ahead of input costs, including wages. This is why profits in industries like uh, supermarkets, for example, energy and gas stations, yeah, of course, huge. Uh, banks, 
These are all powerful, concentrated industries where profits have actually been leading the higher prices, not costs. And so there's something to be said there around uh, how do you limit the exercise of uh, oligopolistic power that helps to explain why prices have risen so quickly. So, Jim, can I ask you to look into the crystal ball here? How do you see this ending and when do you see this ending? I know it's impossible to predict, but what do you think? Crystal balls and economists, that's another danger zone. (laughs) (laughs) They say we were put on Earth to make astrologists look good. So that's pretty good. I got two economics jokes into this interview. You're doing very well, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Most economists, I would say, think uh, there's a recession coming. There's lots of evidence. The U.S. is already in a technical recession. Our uh, labor force uh, and employment are shrinking. Our GDP in May went zero, uh, and we could see a negative number soon. Uh, Housing, of course. Uh, turning down very quickly, consumer and investor confidence turning down quickly. Those are all bad signs. So my guess is that we're headed for a recession, and and what angers me more than anything else is uh, we didn't have to do this. Interesting. Okay. Jim, great stuff. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. That's Jim Stanford. Jim is an economist and director of the Centre for Future Work. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.